You are listening to episode 28 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring Nightshade and Midnight. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my first guest this episode is the host of Task Force X, a podcast dedicated to Suicide Squad, and the host of G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, which I'm told I should listen to someday. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Aaron Head Moss back to the show. How are you, buddy? Hey, Ryan. Doing pretty good. And yeah, you should check out the G.I. Joe show. I mean, it's me and Kyle, and occasionally Jeff Fishman show up, and some other wackaloons on there. Uh, you should really check it out. It's a, it's a good podcast, but I, we're not here to talk about G.I. Joe right now. What are we here to talk about? Um, I'm hoping Seeker Origins 29, the, the Adam one. That's what I've been reading up on. Oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, we, we are actually here to talk about Nightshade, who was a frequent member of the Suicide Squad, and that makes you the right guest to talk about this, because you do a Suicide Squad podcast, and that has yes. got to be tough these days. I mean, there's nothing going on with that property, no. is there? No, not at all. When I started out, yeah, there was a plethora of, you know, Suicide Squad stuff, and here in the last year, it just died off, and you haven't heard anything about the Suicide Squad. No, that's a totally so, dead property. Yeah, nothing's going to We're not going to see a movie in six months on it <laughs> <laughs> all right well we'll discuss that a little bit later but uh people in case someone is checking out this podcast for the first time which is now part of the fire and water podcast network by the way if this is your first time and you don't know what secret origins is well secret origins was an anthology series published by dc comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the dc universe the series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And I think my listeners will agree that the one thing missing from the series so far has been Rob Liefeld. <laughs> well, that's going to change now. This story, The Secret Origin of Nightshade, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was Rob Liefeld's first published work at DC Comics. Yeah, I, I read this when it first came out. Actually, I bought it a little bit later. And I don't recall this being his first work, but when I was rereading it for your podcast, yeah, I'm like, Rob Liefeld? Huh. So yeah, I got looking to see, and yeah, he, yeah, this was his first work, and I didn't hear anything else after that. So I don't know if he ever went on to anything else or... No, I mean, I'm trying to think. He had a... He did Warlord, it looks like, an issue of Warlord next, and then 
Actually, he, he did show up in the Hawk and Dove miniseries, which I rather liked. Mm. And then he just fa- vanished off the face of the earth. Right. He certainly didn't create Deadpool, another character with a movie coming out this year. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, he wasn't over on Marvel at all in any of their mutant titles. Right. <laughs> forget, forget about Rob Liefeld for the moment. And let's talk about this character. Who is Nightshade and what was your first experience with the character? My first experience with her was actually uh, probably in the Suicide Squad. Because, again, I didn't start getting into comics until 87, so I didn't really – wasn't into comics till late 87, 88. So I missed all of her, her Charlton appearances, and so I think this was actually the first time I saw her was in the Suicide Squad. That was certainly where you could find her most. I'll get into her publication history really quickly. Nightshade was created in 1966 by writer Dave Kaler and artist Steve Ditko, who also created Doctor Strange, another character with a movie coming out this year. Nightshade debuted in 1966 in the pages of Captain Atom issue 82. This was back when Charlton Comics owned characters like Captain Atom, Blue Beetle, and The Question. She came back in Captain Adam issues 85 through 89, the final issue of the series. In these stories, Nightshade, whose real identity is Eve Eden, worked with the CIA and functioned as Captain Adam's partner, more or less. She only made three more appearances at Charlton throughout the 70s and early 80s, in the pages of Charlton Bullseye, before DC acquired the rights to the character during Crisis on Infinite Earths. After that, Nightshade appeared in Suicide Squad Issue 1 and continued to appear in most of the series until the end of the run. She also appeared in a couple issues of the post-Crisis Captain Atom series. She turned up frequently in DC's crossover events during the 80s and 90s. And in the mid-2000s, she appeared in the book Shadow Pact. More recently, I think she might have appeared in one or two of the Convergence tie-ins, but I don't know if she's active in the New 52 or DCU. That's... Pretty much the bulk of what I got. Did I leave anything out? Do you know? No, I mean, I, again, I haven't really, yeah, I haven't seen her show up really much. Uh, yeah, she's not in Suicide Squad. Uh, yeah, I, I can't think I've seen her show up in the new 52 or the new DCU or whatever the heck it's called. Um, the only thing I didn't really point out is that over in the Watchmen movie and comic book, Silk Spectre is partially based on mm-hmm. Nightshade. Mm-hmm. All those characters are based on these Charlton characters. Right, right. Yeah, the Silk Spectre was sort of an analog for Nightshade. Yeah. Um, but no, otherwise, yeah, you got her down pretty much. Yeah. All right, folks. We're going to take a short promotional break, but we'll be back in a second with the secret origin of Nightshade. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me and my spunky sidekicks, Jeff Barnhart, the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief, as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. What are you waiting for? Tune in, turn on, and kick ass! Secret Origins issue 28 had a cover date of July 1988 and a cover price of $1.50. The actual on-sale date was March 22, 1988, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover shows Nightshade popping up out of a sort of teleportation portal as Midnight, not the time, but the book's other feature character, fights with an armed thug. The cover was drawn by Keith Stan Wilson, who was mostly known as an inker, but did draw the cover to Secret Origins 24 prior to this, 
and it was inked by William Mesner Lobes, who started out as an artist, but is much better known as a writer on the post-crisis Flash and Wonder Woman after George Perez left, uh, and this is for Nathaniel Wayne of 90s Comics Retrial, Mesner Lobes also wrote the first two issues of Sam Keith's The Max. Extreme! Uh, Aaron, what do you think of this cover? I, I like this cover. I know some of the covers have been decent and, you know, they haven't really combined the two characters very well. I think that, you know, the style on this is very, it's decent. Uh, it's very midnightish, the character, in my, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the way they blended the two together. It's, again, a lot of times it looks like they just took two pictures and slapped them on the same cover. This, they actually look like they belong together. Mm-hmm. You know, they're actually organically mixed together. So I really like this cover. Again, every time I see it, it makes me smile. And again, I'm not a big fan of Midnight, but yeah, I like this cover. I mean, I'm not much really to say about it. I really like the color palettes of this cover. I like the contrast with the sky. I like that they both sort of have a a dark tone and a light tone on their costumes. Him with the, the blue suit and the red tie and her with the sort of dark bluish purple skirt with the, the orange accents. Um, I, and like you're right, I like the fact that they seem to be back to back. Like they're almost kind of split into different halves of the book, but they're still occupying the same space. The only thing is, like, I think his positioning is a little wonky, and and the fact that he's punching out a goon who's clearly there, but we don't get the guy's face. It's cool. It's a fun. I I think it's one of the more like you look at this cover and you're kind of drawn to it. And I, I think a lot of it is the colors, but the figure work is pretty good. The rain's I know the rain's also a nice touch to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Nightshade? Yeah, give me just one second. Let me read this book real quick. No, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good to go. Let's go ahead. So, Eve Eden is at Bell Riv pr- uh, Prison having a hard time sleeping. She gets up and starts walking the prison, and she meets up with Father Kramer. At this point, she tells him her origin story. She grew up in middle class America, father, mother, two children, even her brother Larry. One day, her mother comes to her room and tells the kids that she's actually a princess from another land. A bad guy called Incubus attacked their land and killed the king and queen. Before he died, her dad sent her away to be protected. She just received word that Incubus was defeated and they could return. So they did. Returning, they found that Incubus wasn't actually dead, and they were attacked by Incudemons. Her mom was killed and her brother was captured, and she used her powers to return back to Earth. Her father didn't know the truth about her mother being a princess, so she told her father that when she got home, her mom and brother were both gone. Her dad turned to politics, and a nanny was hired to watch Little Eve, which gave her time to practice her powers. When she was about 13, she decided to return to Shadowland and snuck into the castle. When she heard Incubus's voice, she turned tail and ran back home, frightened. Years went by, and Eve ended up going to college. During that time, her brother was in her dreams. She realized that this was her brother's way of calling for help. So once again, she returned home. She was confronted by Incubus once again, who blasted her with a beam and then grabbed her as she fled. She returned home and discovered she lost her powers to turn to shadows. She dropped out of college and moved to Washington to be with her father. By day, she was a jet-setting floozy. At night, the nightshade. She knew she needed more training, so she turned to King Faraday and offered to become an agent. She did some jobs for him and eventually started working with him. They took out some supervillains, such as Punch and Julie. See upcoming episodes of Task Force X, more on this wacky duo. Uh, Faraday then said that they had a hero called Captain Adam, and they wanted to fake up a history for him and substitute him for Faraday in some of her previous adventures to give him an actual uh, history. Mm -hmm. She was then introduced to the wall, 
She agreed to help out on missions in the future if she could use the Suicide Squad for her own mission. While on the Suicide Squad, she started falling for Rick Flagg and then for Tom Mercer, a.k.a. Nemesis. Sometime after that, she worked with Captain Adam and started falling for him also. Then the Suicide Squad met up with the Justice League International. Again, another little plug. See the Justice League Bohaha podcast and upcoming Task Force X podcast. Eve expressed her doubts about herself and her mission. Father Kramer gives her a pep talk. And Eve says that she'll return to see him in confession afterwards. And this leads us into Suicide Squads 14 through 16, The Nightshade Odyssey. And there you go. There you go. What did you think of this origin story? Overall, I enjoyed it. Um, I I thought Incubus was, again, this was pre-90s. But with Incubus and his Incudemons, again, I had a little chuckle on that. Yeah. I think it was. I don't know. If, I don't know if it was a '90s thing or if that was just a throwback to the '50s and '60s characters. But just the name Inky Demons just kind of made me stop and what? Uh, but overall, I enjoyed the story. Uh, I thought they did a really good job. And again, as we talked about previously, the artist on this was one Mr. Uh, Rob Liefeld. <sighs> Later on, I mean, he becomes a popular artist. And looking at this, I can see why. This was before he stopped. He stopped learning how to draw, I guess. Because, <laughs> again, I thought this art style was very very much reminiscent of the Suicide Squad at the time. I thought he fit, you know, he fit the title, his artwork, as the Suicide Squad was. So, again, you can see the guy has talents. Yep, yep. I, I don't know what happened to him. But. So, I read this twice, and this story might, might be my least favorite origin story that I've read for this podcast so far. Uh, least favorite? Least favorite. And it's not Rob Liefeld's fault. <laughs> that's that's like the most, uh, that's the most craziest thing that I could say, is I hated the story, and it wasn't because of Rob Liefeld. He was not the problem with the story. And I want to clarify by saying, the story, the origin story of Nightshade is not a bad story. It's a fine story. It's even a good story. But the way Rob Greenberger sells this story, the way he presents it, it's a bad comic book. It's really overwritten. There's way too much text. There's way too much dialogue. And most of the story is people standing around talking. There's hardly yeah. there's hardly any action, and when we do get action, it's it's like scenes that are crammed into you know we've got these scenes like where these demons are attacking her family. These are on right. pages with seven, eight, nine panels or more, and everything is like really small, and it's a very talky, dialogue-heavy, expositional, slow origin story that would be great as a text piece, like a, a short story. Or something else, but I think Grant Morrison said comics are about characters in motion, meaning you need action, you need the characters to be doing something. And I wasn't getting that from the story. I, I can see where you're coming from. In his defense, I guess uh, he was trying to fit in a lot of old stories that from a different from a different company. He was trying to fit in a lot of that backstory. So I kind of see where he was going with it, but I, I do see your, your complaint with it. Right. It was a problem in that, I mean, he. this is basically an interlude. This is a story that takes place between the pages of Suicide Squad issue 14 or something. They're getting ready to go on this mission that will be the Nightshade Odyssey, which was a great story in Suicide Squad. Right. 
and Greenberger has to kind of he he needs to manufacture a reason for her to tell this story to Father Kramer, but it's it, there there are very few action beats in it. It's just it's a lot of people standing around. And, and the funny thing is, when you think about Rob Liefeld as an artist, that's not the kind of artist he is. No, you know, not at all. If if you're going to put him on a book turn him loose just like cut off the strings and let him go crazy with the action this is a much more restrained rob liefeld which like you said is is good i mean this isn't it's not that dissimilar from luke mcdonald's style i think he was trying to emulate a little bit of that to make it look like an issue of suicide squad right and in that he really does it but ultimately you get an artist that clearly wants to do bigger action poses with pouches and cross hatches and stuff like that. <laughs> and you get a story written by an editor who just like, ah, I can't get the dialogue out of his way. I'm, I'm really trashing this thing because I did not like it, but there, I, I don't want to just spend the whole time just saying I hated it. So there, there are some interesting parts of this. The introduction of King Faraday into this story, sort of setting up, I mean, they, they needed a replacement for Captain Adam because his whole origin was retconned after Crisis on Infinite Earths when he got his new book. So it, it seems like they were kind of partnering her with Faraday to re, to rehash some of the stories that were in those Captain Adam books back in Charlton. See, I'm kind of mixed because, yes, they did. But then to make those stories they still took place, they had Captain Adam substitute for King Faraday in the official versions of it. So I, I'm kind of mixed. I, I like it, but part of me is like, well, they're going a long way to – make those old stories from a different company fit into this continuity. So, I mean, I had a little bit of a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, they almost I could mean, have skipped it, but they needed to establish that she had background, that she'd been working for the girl. That's why she's on the Suicide Squad. Right. So I think Ostrander was at least treating her as if she had been a former government spy smasher. I'm just curious why if they, if they Ostrander didn't write this story, since he was the one who was using her so much right now. I wonder if it was timing. He just didn't yeah. have the time for it. Or it's a possibility. Um, I don't know if he was writing anything concurrently while he was writing Suicide Squad. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I, it, well, yeah, at this time he was also writing, if I'm not mistaken, he was on Firestorm also. Okay. Uh-huh. So he took over Firestorm. Maybe well, yeah, because I, I covered that annual. So, yeah, he, he, was in, he was in the midst of writing Firestorm at this time also. Could have just been scheduling. Possibly. I mean, it could have. Been, I mean, this this whole thing could have been just mapped out. Like he already knew the storyline, but he didn't have time, so he gave it to Bob Greenberger to basically to flesh it out. A possibility. I'm just wondering if it would have been a better written story if John himself had done it. Because as I go over and over on my you know Task Force X podcast, I love John Ostrander's writing. I and I waxes car every time you know so <laughs> i just wonder how much better would have been if john himself had done the actual writing on it i think it would have been much better i, I think he's a better writer I, I think there's a reason we still talk about ostrander's <laughs> writing and and greenberg greenberg just this wasn't his thing he wasn't a writer he wrote a few scripts but he was an editor the, he, this was a different skill set i don't know i just yeah I, I that was my big problem i just i hated the way this was written but uh, okay moving on what else what did you like about it what were some of the good aspects of the story going to some of the some of the writing i i liked uh near the end father kramer's speech i talked about i liked his little speech in there all the talk talk dialogue doesn't bother me as much as it bothers a lot of people so i think it may be one reason why i didn't dislike it as much i mean i thought his speech you know a lot of times writers can't write a good speech so they kind of you know kind of flub it or kind of have narrative or something over it i thought he did a good job with that 
And again, back at the beginning of the story, jumping around a little bit, I, I like the references to the Cunninghams and Cleavers when she saw about her home life was very, you know, mother and father and brother and sister. Yep. Uh, again, I grew up watching, you know, uh, Happy Days and Leave it to Beaver. So the references to the Cunningham and Cleavers to me, I, I really like that. Mm-hmm. I like how she's talking to Father Kramer about this, but I can also kind of see how it's, again, yeah, it's all very talk, talk dialogue. So. I don't know. There's probably, I'm sure there's a better way they could have done it, but I, I do kind of like the way that, you know, she's t- telling the story to Father Kramer, and that's how they're getting this backstory out. Mm-hmm. And again, like, the story itself is good. Like, the, the dialogue is not bad. The text, the, the captions, the narration, it's not bad. It's just so heavy with these things that I think this would be a text piece. This would be one chapter yes. in a Suicide Squad book like a text-written yes. thing. And it would be good because it's a great little character spotlight and you really get in it, but it's so wordy. It's so skimpy on those beats of actual action and danger, and that's why you read comics. Flipping through it again, there are a few little uh, like flashes in the art where you see, okay, that's, that's closer to what we're going to see of Rob Liefeld in the 90s. On the bottom of page 9, when she goes through the Shadow Portal and she ends up in the dungeon, um, right. and the last panel, we get the split panel of the bad guy's face, and ooh, it's just black, but with a big, white, toothy smile and red eyes. That is every villain that came out of Marvel Comics in the 90s. This is true. And then the one of the... Is it the last one? It might be... Yeah, it's the very last image on page 19. The group shot of the Suicide Squad. Okay. So Nightshade has her eyes closed or something? You know, I didn't didn't catch that. You're right. Rob Liefeld has trouble drawing eyes, but I don't know why. This is like class picture day, and she was blinking. You know what? No, I think actually those are those are lenses. Oh, you're right. But they they are miscolored. Okay, so that's not. All right, that's not Rob Liefeld's fault. That's miscoloring. That's the yeah, colorist. That's a, those are the lenses in her, in her her mask. All right, okay. Rob's off the hook for that one. That was the colorist mistake. However, Rick Flagg's gun. Yeah, I was just going to comment that myself. Rob Liefeld drew a hell of a lot of guns in his career, and I don't think he knows what they look like or how people hold them. <laughs> yeah, no, this – yeah – yeah, between Rick's bulging arm and that, I don't know where that gun's going at. Uh, what are you? What are you? He's what are, he's drawing. He's drawing like two different things. He's got a guy just with his fists bald, and then he's drawing a gun behind it. But that's not the way. You hand, like you're not holding something. It's uh, anyway. That's I'm, uh, that's again. I was saying what a good job you did on this. Yeah, that last panel kind of. Yeah, it's still him. It's, it's you're not going to mistake it, but it's. It's mostly Rick. Right. I mean, Deadshot and T- Bronze Tiger and Boomerang and Nightshade are all fine. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, that, that panel, Rick, who happens to be front and center. Right. So. <laughs> Big as life. Yeah, that that's kind of, yeah. It's, it's only the character that you're looking at that he can't make yeah. it look good. So. But <laughs> those are, that, that's like the one, the one thing that really kind of jumped out of me, again, for the most part. It's surprising that Liefeld does really well with these quiet scenes when he's not cutting loose, which is what you would expect of him. Yes. Um, all right. Now here's a question. Okay. Cause I don't know. I don't know enough about this character and I don't know if this was explained in suicide squad and I can't remember it. Eve Eden's hair color. She's naturally blonde. 
when she's nightshade, she she has black hair. Is uh, that a wig that is attached to her mask, or does it change it, like supernaturally, like part of her powers? It's been a while, but I think it's her. I think it's a, a part of her costume. Okay. I, I want to say it's it's built into the mask. I'm I'm fine with that. That that makes sense. I mean, there certainly there. Lots of characters who do that, who wear wigs as part of their costume. Black Canary does. Black Lightning had an afro as part of his costume, a fake afro. Yeah. So. I don't know if it's just because she's a blonde, but there's several scenes, in, especially on page, uh, where is that? Page nine, the middle way, where she's at college. Mm-hmm. To me, she's very much reminiscent of Don Granger, who he'll yeah. draw in a year or two. Yeah. A lot of the scenes in here, in fact, right above that, when I was reading this, my daughter was sitting here and she said, is that Supergirl? <laughs> On the panel right above that, where she's got the, the Superman T-shirt on and the, the red hair thing, mm-hmm. like, is that Supergirl, Daddy? No, no that's not. So just someone wearing a super, Superman gosh, uh, shirt. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> but again, it's so it's a blonde, and you only do so much with blondes, like you know, leggy, beautiful blondes. Right. Debrawl from the Incredible Shag, she is hot. So I mean, you know, it's, you can only do so much with that, I guess. So you just made me think of something. This would be a cool character to introduce on the Supergirl TV show. Yes, it would. Yeah, that would that would. And you know what? The characters are bringing out. I wouldn't bet it past them. <laughs> they got uh, Red Tornado showing up. Mar- you know, Martian Manhunter. Right. And and I mean, Supergirl and her sister—they're working for this covert spy agency that you know deals with superpowered beings. Nightshade would be a great fit for that. We didn't have a contact with uh, someone at CBS instead of bugging someone's ear. Yeah. That, that would be a nice addition. And yeah, she would fit in really nice. Plus, it would give another female superhero to have on TV. Exactly. And again, that's what they're going for right now, young girl demographic. So, yeah, no, that she would be actually be very work very good in that. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other thoughts on the story? I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot of notes on it because it's such a contrasting statement. It, doesn't, it seems like it doesn't make sense. The writing is fine, except for the fact that it's writing as a comic book. This, this well, I do have a I do have a question. Okay, are are all magical lands mandated to have gigantic mushrooms? Um, in my experience, <laughs> yes. That's just curious. That's a deal breaker. Yeah, there's a lot of magic giant mushrooms in the, the fairy tale land. I go like, wow. It's- if you go to lands with fairies and minotaurs and things like that and werewolves, then yes, there has to be a, a giant mushroom. So. <laughs> but no, other than that, no. I I I, I, I enjoyed it. Wasn't. I'd rather be talking about the Adam, but no, I, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I enjoyed the story for what it was. I, I, I kind of see what he was doing with it. I didn't dislike it as much as you did, mm-hmm. but again, yeah, it, it was, I, I've read worse, but I've definitely read much better. Yeah. Speaking of much better, this leads into the Suicide Squad 14 and 16, which That's was a good story. Yes, it was. Um, and now collected in trade paperback. Yes. I, I'm glad that they're finally collecting some of these old stories God, these are old stories now. Wow. <laughs> I guess it's showing my age. But anyway. Hey, if if nothing else, the movie, the Suicide Squad movie might end up being terrible. Who knows? We'll, we'll find out in you know, half, half a year from now. I hope not, too. But if nothing else, we're getting some great old comics being published. I mean, they've already solicited yes. the fourth volume of Suicide Squad, which covers up to, I think, issue 30 is in that. I mean that's half of, right. that's half of the original series almost. So yeah. who knows? They could end up collecting that entire thing. That would be great if we got that whole like all sixty six oh. issues collected. I, I might, again, I have all the original issues, mm-hmm. but I may have to 
bought, yeah, I may, I may have to get all these trade paperbacks just to have them trade paperback for them also, just to help support it and just, again, to have them within easier reach instead of my 20-some-odd comic boxes out in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I don't really have other thoughts on it. I mean, again, it's, it could have been a better story had John Ostinger written it, but I, I think it was decent. Mm-hmm. Again, my all means, I, I have wor- read worse comics. As I've talked about elsewhere, I'm going through my comics right now, organizing them because I've got a lot of just in regular generic boxes. I'm organizing a payment order, and I'm like, well, you know what? I don't think there was a comic in the 80, late 80s, early 90s that I met that I didn't buy. <laughs> so I, I've read a lot of junk comics. So this isn't quite on, you know, a bad story per se, but it definitely isn't the best story that was in the Seeker Origins. All right. Well, in terms of uh, other recommended readings, I think we both heartily recommend pick up the. If you can't find the original Suicide Squad issues, I think that entire run is available digitally on Comixology. If you buy digital comics, I think that whole run, start to finish, is on Comixology now. They're starting to come out with uh, trade paperbacks. The first two volumes are out, which includes the story that this uh, origin was setting up, the Nightshade Odyssey. That volume also includes the the Manhunt or the Millennium tie-in, and if you want Nightshade's first appearance in comics, that has been collected in the DC Archive edition of the Action Heroes that spotlights Captain Adam. It has a bunch of Captain Adam tales, including issue 82. That was her first appearance. Um, any other thoughts on Nightshade or the Suicide Squad in general? Uh, no, I mean, if you again, if you want to hear my thoughts on the Suicide Squad, definitely check out my Task Force X podcast. Again, I, I really love the Suicide Squad. It's one of my favorite team books, so definitely check that out. And like Ryan said, if you haven't read these stories, definitely check out the trade paperbacks you're coming out with. Again, if, if we support it, if we buy the trade paperbacks, I'm sure DC will keep printing them out. What other podcasts can people find you on besides Task Force X? Well, I've got my new, speaking of the Fire and Water podcast network, I I set up my own network. I've got the Headcast Network, which is on iTunes, it's on Facebook, and on Stitcher Radio. And on the Headcast Network, you can check out all my shows. Or if you want, you can check them out individually. I've got my Head Speaks podcast, which is mostly a geek-oriented. I talk about comic books, movies, whatever interests me. I'm getting ready to start recapping the Power of the Atom uh, series because uh, that's eventually going to tie into the Suicide Squad. Yep. Uh, then I have my Task Force X podcast, which we've mentioned. And as we mentioned earlier, we have the G.I. Joe World American Headcast, where me and Ryan, Kyle, and Jeff talk about the G.I. Joe comic book series from Marvel. And we also started talking about the animated series from the mid-80s. And then I've got my newest podcast, the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, where I cover the Will Payton Starman comic from the late 80s and the Mark Shaw Manhunter comic uh, from the same time period. So I'm covering both both of those issues once a month. And you can also go to my website, which is headspeaks.com. I guess I forgot to plug that. And uh, there's links on there to my, my general website, which is just me and my general wackiness. And then I also have links on there to each of my different podcasts. All right. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for being on the Secret Origins podcast again. It was great talking well, to you. Thanks for having me back on. I was surprised you gave me a call, you know, after the last. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Ryan. <laughs> All right, folks, don't go away because I'll be back after this break with the Secret Origin of Midnight. 
And next episode, we'll talk about the secret origin of 12.01 a.m., I guess. <laughs> Do you have unexplained mood swings? Do you have difficulty communicating with others? Do you exert a fishy odor? Do you experience undue aversion to flames or revulsion of bonfires? Have you suffered from long periods of amnesia or unexplained blackouts? Do you like to toot your own horn, speak of yourself in Shakespearean tones, or sound like Dean Warmer in Animal House? Are you a sociopath? Have you senselessly slaughtered innocent undersea creatures? Is your family tired of every vacation having to be to the beach or on a cruise ship? Do you have a secret collection of green fish scale speedos? Then you may identify with the subject of our new podcast, Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The famer of Atlantis is the Prince of the Deep. Join us each week as we review the next installment from Prince Namor, The True Submariner's Adventures in Tales to Astonish, starting with the quest in issue 70 and moving forward through the Silver Age of Marvel Comics. Check out our blog at serialsurfaceinvaders.tumblr.com for a new show every two weeks or so and a steady stream of ridiculous aquatic content. And please... If any five or more of the above conditions apply to you, seek professional help. back, and my next guest should be a familiar voice if you've listened to this show before. You can also hear him host the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, and every once in a blue moon, he co-hosts the Hero Points podcast with the Irredeemable Shag. Please welcome the man who made the Fire and Water Podcast Network a multinational enterprise, Ciscoid. <laughs> How are you, my friend? Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm always game for one of, well... I don't think we did loser heroes before, but uh, I'm a fan of you know obscure characters, and this is going to be one of them. Well, I don't know how you can call them obscure. The spirit is one of the most recognized and popular characters out there. But we're not doing the spirit. We're not? We're not. Are you sure? Pretty sure. We're not doing the spirit. We're not doing the clock. We're not doing the whisper. <laughs> we're doing Midnight is the one we're doing. Uh, if you say not so. Not Dr. Midnight. Okay. Not Dr. Midnight. You've done that one already. Well, I went back to the previous episodes that you were on, which we covered Crimson Avenger, Sandman, and Golden Age Flash. We recorded all of those well before you ever started Lonely Hearts. Back then, you were my guest from Siskoid's blog of Geekery, and now you've got your own show and your own regular co-hosts, and you've got other shows in the works. How did all of this happen? I was... You know, inspired by the rest of the Fire and Water network, really. You know, starting podcasting with with uh, Shag and then with you, 
I just started to think, uh, you know, I, I could do better. So <laughs> that was a very shag thing to, to say. But no, really, um, well, I don't you know. You were really inspired by us. Really, I was actually inspired to do it because I was doing it. And I thought, well, you know, if I could do it more, then my English would be a little smoother. Because it is my second language, I find myself sometimes doing exactly this, stuttering through uh, the podcasts. So if I applied myself to speaking English more and in a radio-ish format, then it might be smoother when I do have these uh, intersections with other shows. But really, Lonely Hearts was inspired by what I was doing with the Legion of Super Bloggers, the Hot or Not feature which will become its own show in the near future uh, type thing. But I was talking with uh, women who had no comic book experience about the Legion of Superheroes. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to do a show with them about romance comics and how dated they seem now, the older romance comics. And then that morphed into a show that was more of a bros kind of thing, guys talking about romance comics, which would be the, the opposite or the, the alternate universe version of Hot or Not. Instead of people who don't know superhero comics, we've got guys who don't really know romance comics that, all, all that well and are discovering them, laughing about them. Um, you know. So that's how the show began in my mind. And then here it is. Well, folks, if you're listening to this show as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you should definitely be hearing the Lonely Hearts podcast. And even if you're not... Go out and subscribe to Lonely Hearts anyway, because it is such a fun show. The way you guys crack the material, it's it's a blast to listen to. I love every episode. And now, your first time on the show, we covered Crimson Avenger, and I think we both agreed he was an obvious visual ripoff of Green Hornet and the Spider and those characters. Yes. But at least they gave him a different color scheme. This time, we're here to help talk about Midnight, an obvious visual ripoff of Will Eisner's The Spirit... And they didn't even bother to change his color, the color of his suit and hat. Am I wrong to characterize Midnight that way? Uh, well, that's how he started out as a concept, uh, because um, one of my one, part of my research here is uh, the excellent quality companion put out by Tomorrow's, who also produced the Alter Ego fanzine. And the quality companion has tons of stuff in it and chronicles every character and all their appearances and what they did in those in those appearances from quality comics and the origins of all of these and all the artists and writers who worked with quality it's a very nice resource and this has a, a more complete story than what roy thomas recounts in the letters page of this issue it, it's a little more complete so, because probably the uh, the interview came from after but they did interview will eisner because as the story goes, Will Eisner was drafted into the army or was in the army, and his spirit was very popular. It had, you know, it had, it had its own newspaper strip. It was appearing in comics, and it was being published at quality at the time. But Will Eisner had kept the rights to the character. So you couldn't – if something happened to Will Eisner, all the rights to this character belonged to his family – and then suddenly there wouldn't be any new spirit stories uh, because they belong to Will. So uh, Busy Arnold, who was the Quality Comics publisher at the time, asked Jack Cole, who was, had yet to create Plastic Man, but was very close to it, asked Jack Cole to create a knockoff. Even though Quality had it, 
other knockoffs. And I mentioned the the, cl- the clock and the whistler. These are you know they're they're other uh, knockoffs of the spirit. So would you create a knock uh, a spirit knockoff, and then we can keep publishing. We can publish a similar hero to the, the spirit while Eisner is away. And if anything, God forbid, anything happens, which it didn't. In fact, he didn't even go out to, um, to fight. Uh, he stayed at home. Then, you know, we, we, were, we were covered kind of thing. Right. And apparently Jack Cole was, uh, wanted to do it because, you know, put food on the table. But he felt, you know, awkward about it. And he went to Will Eisner himself. Now, I'm going to read from the account that Will Eisner gave to the Alter Ego reporters about this. And he said, Jack Cole came to me in my studio in Tudor City. Jack said, I got a problem, Will. Busy wants me to create a character just like the spirit. Now, we both agreed that what Busy needed was a backup in the event anything happened to me. He said, Cole said, I feel it's not morally right. Actually, what he wanted was for me to give him a benediction and say, it's all right. I said, well, Jack, I can't tell you not to do it because it's your livelihood. And frankly, I don't think I can sue Busy over a thing like this. He has the right to create characters for his magazines if he wants to. Now, in those days, any, everyone was doing knockoffs of other people's characters anyway. Arnold wasn't the only one doing things like that. We joked around for, about it for a while. And I don't know if it was Jack or me who got the brilliant idea to make him a funny character. That way, Jack could satisfy Busy Arnold and it'd be a totally different character. And that's exactly what happened. Even though this origin story that we're going to read together is very serious, like played straight, Mm -hmm. the actual comics were very much in the humor vein. They were Mm -hmm. closer to to Plastic Man than they are to uh, the spirit or anything else. So it became this kind of zany thing. And so if you read Midnight Stories and you read Spirit Stories, they had a totally different atmosphere. They were totally different, even though the characters are visually similar. So is it a knockoff? Yes, but also no. From the publisher standpoint, I guess it was a right. deliberately exploitive knockoff, but at least the creative genesis of it came from perhaps some better intentions. It probably was meant to be something that uh, would draw people to pick up Smash Comics where it mm-hmm. appeared, thinking they were getting spirit stories. Right. <laughs> and then it, that's not what it was. Uh, but it had a good longevity, so I guess people liked it, uh, even though it wasn't exactly the spirit. Well, then picking up from where the meeting between Jack and Will Eisner left off, uh, my notes for the character's publication history, Midnight was created in 1941 by Jack Cole, the same legendary artist that we said would create Plastic Man about six months later. The character Midnight is the masked alias of Dave Clark, a spot reporter for a major radio station. He first appeared in Smash Comics issue 18, along other iconic characters such as Wings Wendell and Abdul the Arab. Midnight continued appearing in Smash Comics, and with issue 28, he became the cover character for the book. After that, he appeared in every issue and on every cover of Smash until issue 85 after which the book was totally overhauled and retitled Lady Luck. After 1949, Midnight did not appear until the early 1980s, where he showed up in, you guessed it, Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Midnight had his first adventures retold in this issue of Secret Origins, and then popped up in the first six issues of Ms. Tree Quarterly in the early so, 90s. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, this version of Midnight was, actually might have been a different guy. 
So it, uh, visually inspired by it was like a third generation right. <laughs> uh, midnight or spirit because uh, yeah same kind of look but a different uh, right. he had a different character different name yeah. yeah and after that I'm not sure if he appeared in anything until just a few months ago when he cameoed in Convergence Plastic Man and the Freedom Fighters which spotlighted a lot of the quality comics characters besides Smash did I miss anything did he have any other appearances in his publication history. Not really. There's an Elseworlds version of him or a character named Midnight in an Elseworlds uh, by John Arcudi. But uh, again, a very different character, just the name repurposed uh, pretty much. But Smash Comics was his home and pretty much his only real claim to fame. I mean, he did when he took over the, the covers, he did, you know, push out characters that are better known today. Well, characters. The Ray. The Ray is better known today than he is. Uh, but at the time, the covers were between either – it was either Bozo the Robot, who is more obscure yet, or The Ray. So he got cover feature you know, in front of The Ray, which is a bit, kind of a big deal. But probably, again, because of the connection to the spirit, which was a big seller at the time. Um, yeah. So Jack Cole wrote and drew many of the early stories and many of the later stories, but the, like the middle chunk is by uh, Paul Gustafson, who was a quality workhorse, really. And he's the one, I think Gustafson was the one that really played it like, well, I'm going to name another obscure strip, I guess, but felt to me like his jester stories. Which were, uh, I know, but yeah, they were also the same kind of zany, zany extended cast mm. stories where there are a lot of crazy characters in the neighborhood and it's almost more their story than it is the main characters. Uh, the same kind of light touch. So if you look at the Midnight story, especially the later ones where Jack Cole's uh, style, Plastic Man's style was really well developed, those stories are very, very slick. They're funny. They're kind of ridiculous and fun. The middle chunk by Paul Gustafson aren't quite as polished, but they do have that same fun feel. And uh, it's, it's about a cast of characters, not just the midnight character. And those, I mean, the Jester was also published at um, Quality. So mm -hmm. it was part of their house style, one of their types of stories that they told. All right. Well, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of the man called Midnight? Sure. You don't want to talk about the cover? Oh, we can, actually. I Too, too ugly for words, is that it? <laughs> what do you think of the cover? I mean, just... Well, the cover is... I, I like the nightshade part of it well enough. It's mm -hmm. just all the arms and legs uh, in maroon from the, yeah. the bad guys that Midnight's fighting. It's just like, what's what's going on? And, uh, you know, they're trying to pull his, <laughs> his jacket off. And it's very oddly... Um, it's very oddly done. I, I like the idea of two back-to-back -back characters mm -hmm. and all that, but it just seems like the left half where Midnight is is altogether too busy, uh, and then there's a lot of empty space on the other side. So it, it doesn't work for me. I mean, I like the the, the skies are reddish, which is like, uh, well, we've got a, a Golden Age character and a Charlton character. So it's like red red skies put yep. me, puts me in mind of Crisis, even though it was yep. well over by then. Yeah. You know, the highlight is, you know, Midnight's got a cool logo, which is featured here. And there's something very odd about by Thomas and Kane, which somehow reminds me of Batman because mm -hmm. Thomas Wayne and right, Bob right. Kane. It's yep. odd. But uh, but these are distractions, you know. I, they, it I almost looks like this. two different styles. Like, I think the Nightshade one looks a little bit 
sleeker. Like it seems more it, maybe just like the the way her her legs and her body is drawn. It seems a little bit more like a kind of conventional house superhero style for a woman, whereas he looks much more kind of. Like rubbery, yeah, rubbery. Yeah. I was actually going to say it almost looks like what Jack Cole might have done in later incarnations of Plastic yeah. Man. Well, he uh, does look. I, I'd even you know say that the style is is like Gustafson. Mm. It's he's got a, like a doughy kind of characters like that. So maybe the artists are trying to you know emulate two styles. Yeah, you know the Golden Age style, but it I mean it doesn't really come together. Sadly. All right. Are you ready to tell the listeners the secret origin of the man called Midnight? I sure am. The Secret Origin of Midnight by writer Roy Thomas, artist Gil Kane, letterer Gene Simek, colorist Tom Zuko, and associate editor Mark Wade. The Man Called Midnight, fearless avenger of evil deeds, eerie friend of the needy, fighter for justice for all in the place called Big City. Those words are read by radio talent Dave Clark, pinch-hitting for a popular action show's normal announcer. Driving home from work that day, he sees a 12-story building split and crack and come down all by itself. He stops to help the victims trapped in the rubble, and on a hunch, brings a piece of concrete to Freddy, a friend who can analyze it, and finds it is nine parts sand. That night, dressed in a blue suit, fedora, and domino mask, Dave crashes the party of rich construction mogul Morris Carlton, who owns the building. Beats up his bodyguards with skills he learned on the traveling boxing circuit during the Depression and knocking the corrupt millionaire into the decor. Answering to the name Midnight, inspired by the radio show, he passes the hat around to collect money for Carlton's rich friend from Carlton's first friends to pay for victims' hospital bills. He even takes cash from one Rod Riley, whom we know as Firebrand. Midnight then drops the money at the hospital, but is literally roped by Carlton's men and dragged by a car to Carlton's newly and shoddily built dam, where he's hung upside down and threatened with drowning as the water levels rise. Inspired by his clock motif, he swings like a pendulum until his bonds are worn through by friction, and he escapes just as the dam starts to crack. He races to the radio station, where he grabs the mic to warn people of the impending danger, and when the dam does break, people have had time to evacuate. Carlton hoped the dam would hold long enough to claim it was sabotage and get insurance money, but that's not going to work now, so he'll just skip down with all of his assets converted into cash, all there sitting in a safe. Midnight strikes, by which I mean the hour and the hero. The big fight with Carlton's men ends with two of them careening out of a window to their deaths. And Carlton, subdued, Midnight threatens him until he confesses, then reveals that he had the office PA system wired to loudspeakers outside, bringing the police to arrest Carlton while he escaped. All the money went to victims of the flood relief. Far-fetched? Not as much as the stories to come, we're told, when Midnight had all sorts of adventures in the company of a mad scientist and a talking monkey. The end. The end, indeed. (laughs) That final page. (laughs) <laughs> well, the final page is closer to what uh, Midnight Stories really were like. Yeah, exactly. I, I got to that last page and I was like, wait a minute, we're, t- we're taking a weird turn with this book. What the heck happened? <laughs> yeah, uh, and I did read the original, I, I did seek out and read the original uh, Smash uh, Comics number 18 story. I did too, yeah, I found that one. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's very similar. 
but is, there are major differences. It is very similar, but there are major differences, and I am glad that Roy Thomas took more liberties with this story, and we'll get to some of those differences. But first and foremost, I gotta say, I, I had no expectations going into this story because I didn't know who the character was, and I didn't really care. But I loved this story. This was such an entertaining read. And it reminds me of how much I like Roy Thomas when he's writing things other than the superhero genre. And it's not a knock against his superhero work because it's great. His stuff with DC and Marvel in the superhero genre is great. But I think about the stuff that he did for Marvel with Marvel horror characters, with Conan... And then things like this, like with with he was writing pulp characters, like when we did the Crimson Avenger. He he's got a flair for this time period. He just knows it so well, and it does make me want to read more stories like this. Even though I kind of got to the end and I was like, well, I don't really need to know more from this character. But for a done in one, I had a blast reading this. I liked this story. What did you think? Um, no, I liked it. You know, I had problems with uh, not the story itself, although. There's that Roy Thomasy moment where uh, Midnight confronts Rod Riley, right. Firebrand, and we're told in the letters page that you know Firebrand was in the works to be a Secret Origins, also with right. Gil Kane art, but that just never happened. But that moment is like it's a lot of well, let's cross over it with you know cross over with others, uh, just like there's this weird name checking at one point where Midnight Dave Clark is going well, you know there are lots of I'm I'm doing this radio play about this radio show about a masked hero, but who needs it when we have real masked heroes? And then he names the Flash, and and he names Dollman of all people, <laughs> Dollman. But you know that's a quality it hero. Was a quality so hero, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense to mention him. Those those are the moments that break the format where we're no longer in a pulp uh, radio serial type uh, adventure. But but in any case, that's not what Midnight was about, even though maybe his origin is told in those terms. And so my problem with the story is is Gil Kane, even though he's also what's strong about the story for me. The Gil Kane art in this is very dynamic. The action scenes come to life when he's being dragged by that car, mm-hmm. uh, when he's swinging from the dam, when the fights, which obviously everybody's got a – there's nobody knock, knocks back villains like <laughs> Gil Kane. Everybody you know, punches. flips – yeah. yeah, everybody flips end over end. Uh, but, you know, and, and that's very dynamic and works well. And obviously the Golden Age story doesn't have that level of uh, action because everything's told in small panels, uh, as was the, the style of the day. But at the same time, I, I'm finding it hard to, to find him suitable to this character because I know the character was really a comedy strip, that it was really... You know, a, a sort of plastic man without powers type thing. So I'm go. I, I'm always thinking. Well, yes, the origin is well told, and yes, it's, it's fairly close to the original, but it, it doesn't have the tone that the original had. And since Midnight is not gonna exist beyond this, really, or it seems to me like maybe they had plans for it because this was followed up with a second Who's Who entry and Who's Who update eighty eight, where Midnight's story is retold, even though you know it never went anywhere. So it's just it's just the same origin that we had in the first Who's Who volume, with added details that come from the Secret Origins. Were they planning to do something? Were they were trying to push a Midnight series or miniseries? Just never happened. So if if it's it's not going to go anywhere, 
how about you tell the story in the style that it really was instead of making it seem like it was a spirit knockoff? That's your what's what you come away with reading this is oh a spirit knockoff. The, you know the type of action or the type of story, and even so, I mean it's even a knockoff of any radio serial adventure series. Sure, yeah, but I guess. Sorry, we're missing what made it different and unique. I understand that, and I guess just because I was ignorant of way, of the tone, the humorous tone, the slapsticky tone the original series would have, because I was just assuming that it was the spirit in not just look but in tone. I, I wasn't expecting anything else, so Gil Kane's style didn't turn me off. I loved it. I I I know Gil Kane is hit and miss for a lot of people. Some people just don't like him. I think I like just about everything I've I've seen him do, and I really like this. I, I think it's appropriate for the tone of this story, this sort of origin, where the story might go from there, maybe not. And and you're right, it does seem weird to have him in here unless they were doing, unless they had more plans for the character. But I don't know what those plans would have been. I don't know. I mean, they already tried to do. Uh, they were doing a four-issue Crimson Avenger miniseries, and right. I don't imagine the market was there for two characters of that same kind. And the Who's Who entry is drawn by Chuck Austin yeah. in a much cleaner, funner style. So was was it going to be like that? If I mean, and I've not read any. I, I've tried to research it, and you know, I found no information whatsoever about plans to create a, a midnight ongoing series or whatever that might have been. So it's just an odd, and, and it's the question I often ask myself in any case when reading Secret Origins: is why this character? Because there are many characters that don't get origins, as right. we know. So why Midnight, a sort of, you know, uh, in the dying embers of All-Star Squadron, and, you know, if he wasn't going to appear in Young All-Stars, if he wasn't going to go to his own series, if he wasn't going to be revamped, why tell this or- secret origin of a, a very obscure, at this point, an obscure quality hero that has barely appeared in All-Star Squadron anyway? Especially when they were planning other stories like Firebrand, like The Ray. They had these these origins plotted out. Some of them were written. Some of them were completely penciled and never got published. Yeah, and so why – I mean, Firebrand's equally obscure. In All-Star Squadron, he was you – know, the first issue replaces him with his sister. But still, or The Ray. The Ray would probably fit better in Secret Origins, in a modern Secret Origins, than Midnight. So I always ask that question whenever the character is, you know, why this obscure character? And I love it when, I mean, let's understand, I have a love of obscure characters, I have a love of Golden Age characters. So this is not a problem for me. But it does beg the question, you know, marketing wise, or because it's Midnight, because Nightshade, Midnight, you know, similar words is that. Why did, was this one pushed through? And in asking that question, it also makes me ask, well, why was he, why did he get a second entry in uh, Who's Who? Why did he get a revised entry in Who's Who? For God's sake. I can understand his entry in here being close to the chronological order that Roy Thomas was trying to preserve and maybe the marketing of lining up the two knight-based characters with their names. As for the Who's Who entry... That tells me that, they, I mean, they had to have been hoping for uh, somewhere else to go with the character. It couldn't have just been a one-off. They had to have thought they were going to do something else with him, even if it was Roy planning something and who else but him. 
yeah. what else uh, let's look at the story a little bit I mentioned or we both mentioned yeah. that the story in this origin differs from the original story from Smash Comics 18 and a lot of the differences I like first I like the character's secret identity. I like that he works in a radio station. You're right. It's not completely new, but it's a new take on making the character a reporter. But it's a little bit different. It still gives them access to breaking news so that they can be on the scene of these you know, emergency situations. It's more Billy Batson than it is Clark Kent. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. But the, the little change here from the, or, the original origin is that they make him announce – they make Midnight – a radio show. Yes. From which he takes his cue. In the original story, he's an announcer. He reads the news and all that. But he's not reading. And the, the words I read at the top of it, um, the whole, um, what was it? The Man Called Midnight, Fearless mm-hmm. Avenger of Evil Deeds. This was, you know, the, the masshead of right. the his stories. going on the title of right. the, yeah. So making it part of the Shadow Nose and all that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is is a cute moment and and gives them a motivation to become because in the original story like many golden age origins you know guy sees injustice eh, put on a mask mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty much the only origin that we saw that with the crimson avenger uh, although roy thomas also gave him a motivation or a, a reason to be in costume there was a halloween party and all that uh or sandman sandman just dresses up mm-hmm. yeah out of nowhere. So this gives him – it puts the seed in his brain uh, about you know that identity. And when he blurts out that he's Midnight, uh, well, just call me Midnight. It's the first thing that comes into his mind because he was just the announcer on an episode of that show. That's a, that's a fun bit. And in the original one, so there's no show called Midnight, but he shows up, he busts Carlton's party – and a woman at the party in Smash Comics 18 just shouts Midnight like she knows who he is. So maybe that wasn't his origin. Maybe that was just the first time we're seeing his adventure because there's no other way of signaling that that was the character's name except in that weird panel in the middle of that first story. So I do like the idea that he's he's incorporating a previous idea and using that to inspire his new identity. The friend called Freddy. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, romancing the stone there on, <laughs> in uh, his office or university, maybe? Yep. Uh, also listening to radio. So, radio keeps being a, it's a motif in the whole thing. This guy is not, I don't think he's from the original comics. He's not in that. He's TV. not in that first issue, no. No, in the first issue, Midnight just picks you know, up a crumb- piece of rock and he's like, well, this is nine parts sand to one yeah, part. He, he, just knows. he can eyeball that. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you see him scratching it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just crumbles in his hands. So that guy is an invention, but he's not from – they could have almost taken a, one of the characters from the wider cast from the later stories in Smash Comics and put him there. But at the same time, the scientist friend that Midnight hung out with started as a villain. So it very much had a, like a soap opera kind of vibe where characters would appear, be taken out, come back in, uh, had evolving stories. So the professor – started out as a menace, an invention that was a menace and he was sort of a villain and then reformed and became Midnight's friend. So basically his scientist friend comes later. Like a lot of the things here, like the talking monkey and all that, you know, what's, what's the deal with that and why is it so, that's why it's so jarring when you see it in the last page, especially under Gil Kane's pencils. Um, you know, it's not really his style, talking monkeys, but that's all later. So they couldn't use his scientist friend. So they sort of made up a sort of CSI or maybe a university person. He looks like Foggy with, Nelson with a microscope. Yeah. 
that's it. That's it. So and I wonder. I wonder if Roy, if he was planning to do something like to to use this character in another story, if it ever went somewhere. Because this this seems like a moment where Roy would have borrowed from like one of his other like that that could have easily been Dave Clark going. Hey, I just happen to know this guy named Rex Tyler who knows something about chemical composition, and he goes to you know Tyler Company and, and Rex T- and we get our man basically saying, uh, yeah, this is crappy concrete. Yeah, so it's just an odd piece, an odd difference. Yeah. But then he doesn't want to make Midnight too competent. Already, Midnight is a radio announcer who is very good at boxing and fighting, yeah. which is explained, mm-hmm. which is a nice addition. But also, you know, a parkour master is <laughs> <laughs> running up. Uh, he's running up buildings and uh, jumping around, and there's no explanation for that ability. Those those Golden Age heroes were jacks of all trades. It was. It seems like every billionaire industrialist was also, you know, a tenth degree black belt. So I think that's part of the um, that's that's what people were at the time. <laughs> you know, you had to be good at everything. There were no experts. Everybody was a generalist, uh, an amateur at everything. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a wartime thing where you know let's pull us ourselves by our bootstraps and uh, make it happen. You know, that's the American of the day. It's also the, the British person of the day. It must be the Canadian of the day. When when Dave is in the studio, I like it. It's almost a throwaway line, but they address the fact that he, he uses a completely different voice for when he's narrating the midnight story to when he goes into his regular news broadcast. And that seems like such a great trait for a masked vigilante character to have, especially when his mask is only the domino mask that gets made fun of constantly in modern day stories. When they say, oh yeah, yeah I, all you're doing is, it's basically the equivalent of wearing sunglasses. I know what you look like when you're wearing sunglasses. But now they're saying, it's like, okay, well he's really able to disguise his voice. That might give him a slightly more of an edge when he's fighting the bad guys. And, and it makes sense in, when, you know, when he runs in, mm-hmm. grabs the mic, pushes people around, you know, tells people to evacuate an area because the dam's about to burst. Right. You're just listening to radio and you're going, oh, well, Dave Clark just... <laughs> Oh, that's J- Dave Clark breaking in with the special news. Uh, but no, nobody has, you know, nobody puts two and two together. Everybody knows him by his voice, so he has to disguise his voice. Exactly. Uh, I'm midnight. <laughs> that's, that's what I really want. <laughs> I want I want all of the, the effects in the, the college humor mini movies about Batman with that voice to be done for midnight. Yeah. Okay, one of the biggest changes from the original story to this secret origin, and thank you, Roy Thomas, for doing this. The explanation, when Midnight leaves, he mentions that he's going to take all of the money he just robbed from the rich to feed the poor by giving it to the hospital so that it can pay for the treatment for all of the people who were in the building collapse. And the bad guy's like, yep, he's going to a hospital, go to a hospital and grab that guy. In the original version, <laughs> Bad Guy Carlton says, I smeared whipped cream on the back of his jacket. Comb the city looking for somebody with whipped cream on his back. <laughs> yep. And they do. The bad guys are just driving by. They're like, that guy's got whipped cream on the back of his... R- throw a rope around him and drag him behind the car. Wait, like, you're getting an inkling of the Jack Cole... Yeah. <laughs> ...kind of zany humor. Similarly, you know, at the party, Carlton... The way Carlton is is drawn mm-hmm. with the twirly mustache, mm-hmm. which he's missing. He's completely, you know, bald in the um, in the new origin. But he had like a twirly vil- villain's mustache. So it's very much more cartoonish uh, in the original, even though the style wasn't yet... 
at Plastic Man levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you kind of get that sense. You know, mm-hmm. when Dave pushes someone away to grab the announcer's microphone, it's very much in a humor style, the way people fall. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a mix of... <laughs> Not in this one. He's throwing his so-called friends through windows just yeah, to get that's... to that microphone. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, definitely. Okay, that's a case where I'm like, you know what, Gil Kane... Maybe tone it down a notch. Maybe maybe he's letting his inner Michael Bay out of here, where he's just like, yeah, if there's a if he's pushing, he can't just push somebody a little bit. He's got to push them, and they fall onto dynamite, and there's an explosion. Yeah, to my surprise, one of the changes is that when he um, when he's trapped at the dam, mm-hmm. the the whole pendulum thing to fray the ropes is an invention by Roy Thomas. It's not in the original story. Yeah, and that's how he gets loose. But he doesn't do the pendulum thing. He doesn't make it reference to to clockwork or anything. And that's a nice moment. It's like, well, my gimmick is is clocks or time, and he, you know, he does that because of that. It's it's an interesting little wrinkle to what would normally have just been, you know, just oh, let's just use the ropes away and it's over. And now there's there's motion to it. I don't know. I liked it. It's also a confusing passage of time in this story. In that. Uh, how many times? It's always does mid- midnight. <laughs> how many times does the clock strike midnight in a single night? It's like, I think there's two nights. Uh, uh, yeah, it must be. But the the, the splash page between- doesn't count. The splash page, it's midnight, doesn't count. And then there's the midnight where he crashes the party. Mm-hmm. And then there's the midnight, the next midnight where he takes down the bad guys. So takes down the bad guys. Presumably, yeah. the evacuation of the town by the from the flooding dam that would have taken an entire day. That that must be because. The bad guy is he's clearing out his safe to get out of town right? as he's listening but to the reports of that. Really, if you're a villain in Big City, or here it's New York, it's, <laughs> it's been translated as New York, but if you're a villain in Big City, you know, lock the doors at midnight or find, find your way out of town before midnight because midnight only strikes at midnight and there's always like that spotlight somehow magically appearing, the, the spotlight with the, uh, the clock face on it. Mm-hmm. It's basically a clock tower that just happens to shine down on the villains. It's <laughs> a cool effect, but, you know, completely symbolic, I suppose. And that, that's also a bit of a change, isn't it? And I don't think that's in the original story, that kind uh, of graphic. No. It's it's a gimmick that's ripe for parody, though. Uh, just like him him busting in on some criminals, and they're like, "Hang on, my watch is fast," and they're just sitting around, just waiting for you know thirty seconds until had the clock. Yeah, had this gone to series, <laughs> exactly. You could have done all the gags. In any case, it should have a gag. Yeah. They're just talking you about know. the weather, you know, making small talk, and then and then bong. It was like, okay, now we can fight. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That'd be that'd, that'd be funny, but the. Um, so those are the main differences. Mm-hmm. Any any others? That, oh yeah, the, when he kills the two guys, that's not in the original story. That's a surprising bit. They go out the window. Yeah, they go out the window. They attack him with a with a table, and then they you know he just kicks the table over himself, and they fall out of a window. And, uh, die, I suppose. It gives Carlton a a reason to really to, to believe. That midnight might kill him and then confess or play the game. But in the original story, and we know Golden Age stories very often were pretty violent and you know, criminals often died as opposed to more or later stories. I don't want to say modern stories for God. Jeez. Uh, now it's massacres. But the at the time, you know, heroes would throw people out of windows and not give it a second thought. And yet that doesn't happen here in the Golden Age story. It only happens in the modern story. 
Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a bit odd for me. But well, I mean, it's an odd thing for him to add, even especially since it wasn't in the original story. And then they add also that he uses radio expertise to wire the PA to the loudspeakers so that gives a reason for the police to barge in and get him dead to rights. Right. Whereas in the original story, they just barge in and I guess they were on board. <laughs> you know, I, I guess he's going to confess to them now. You know, and so it's a little more complex in terms of how law and order work. But uh, the, so all the changes, yeah, I agree. All the, all the changes are good changes. They add something, they make Midnight more interesting, they play with the radio motif better than the original. Uh, and the action is, you know, is, since it's going to be an action story, which the original was, it wasn't yet a zany humor story, it was mm-hmm. very much a, you know, an action story. The action is incredibly dynamic. I love Gil Kane, especially in this time, uh, the later Gil Kane with the very thick line. Uh, that's my Gil Kane, the Gil Kane I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like the story. I, I, I my question is, ju- my question was just, how close is this tonally to the original, and is it really doing its service? Is, is it really doing it justice? You know, yeah. or is it really ignoring and denying what Midnight actually was? Right. But as a standalone story, if I didn't know anything about Midnight, which I didn't at the mm-hmm. time, you know, it, it was a good pulp type tale. That was my approach to it. Again, not knowing anything about the character or what the tone or the voice of his Golden Age strips was like. I I went into this just expecting a pulp story, and I felt like I got a good one. I Like I said, I loved this story. Now the question is, does it make me want to read more Midnight stories? No, not necessarily. I want to read more pulp stories. This makes me want to go dig out one of my you know Dick Tracy omnibuses. But uh, did I need more from this character? No, I, I I guess no. I I don't feel like I'm missing anything. I mean, you for for listeners who want to read his Golden Age adventures, go to Digital Comics Museum, uh, the website. You can find a lot of old, except for what would become DC and Marvel. You can find a lot of old Golden Age stories there. You can preview them for free. Um, almost all of quality stuff is there, including the. Plastic Man stories from Police Comics, yeah. which are great, and these Smash Comics. You can see his old adventures. But... And I, I think they get interesting. I mean, that's it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go back and read Midnight Stories, and uh, if, you'll, if you'd rather have hard copy, well, I do recommend The Quality Companion, mm-hmm. uh, which is more of an encyclopedia and uh, yeah. interview yeah. book. But it does reprint many Golden Age stories, uh, or one story per various characters. And there is a Midnight Story in there. There's that one. I think the best of Jack Cole must have a Midnight Story in it, but I don't have that book. And mm. But uh, it's supposed to cover some Smash Comics material, so probably Midnight. Uh, you know, and you know, I could send you to my to the Cisco's blog of geekery uh, because I did write a Who's Midnight feature. Just write Who's Midnight in the search bar, and it'll get you right there. Where it's like just before Midnight was canceled, just before Smash Comics was changed uh, titles, mm-hmm. like number eighty four, and it really is a mature Jack Cole showing off the zaniness of the strip, and it features Father Time of all characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, and I, I put up a lot of panels and talk about the story. And rereading that in preparation for this episode of Secret Origins, I, I felt it, you know it didn't make a, it did not make a bad case for reprinting these stories one day. I, I mean the Jack Cole ones at least. Sure. And perhaps some kind of you know 
omniversal Jack Cole compendium mm-hmm. where it's not just Plastic Man, but you know you get his other strips because they really are fun to look at. It's like a, you know, it's kind of a early Mad Magazine, Mad Comics, yeah, 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 type vibe. So it's it's worthy of attention and it's interesting. So I think if we're talking about Going back to read old Midnight Stories, they are not like this story that from Secret Origins. If you're reading only the Secret Origins story, then you don't want to read this with the talking monkey that is prefigured at the end. If it becomes the talking monkey thing, then it's totally not the same tone, the look of the Secret Origins story. So either you want to see... Like, like you, you don't need to see Gil Kane draw talking monkey stories. Right. But if it were people that usually handle Plastic Man kind of thing, then yeah, it could be interesting. You know, it could be interesting. Yeah, this but, made this made me want to read the Shadow and the Spirit, right? Or the Spider, a, a bit like um, the, when we read Crimson Avenger, exactly. That kind of thing. Uh, so maybe you know, maybe DC DC's all, uh, often published Spirit stories. Mm-hmm. And it would only come later that they would, but maybe they were close to a deal and then midnight fell through. You know, that kind of thing where, oh, we're going to do it. Oh, no, we're going to get the spirit. Oh, no, we didn't get the spirit. No, who cares about midnight anymore? Oh, we got the spirit. Maybe that's the kind of thing that's going on behind the scenes that we don't know. Um, but they did publish various pulp series through the next decade after this, uh, mostly Shadow and. I'm yeah. not sure about others, but they had a couple of Shadow series at least. Right, I remember that. Yeah, so maybe, well, there's no room for Midnight if we're also going to do the Shadow, or two Shadow series. That's He's true. a much bigger name. And, yeah. and when you had Bill Sienkiewicz drawing the covers to Shadow. Yeah. Was... Did you ever pick up the Miz Tree Quarterly issues from the early 90s? No, I did not. I, I've, I've seen them, I've flipped through them here and there, and um, to look, you know, in preparation for this, I did come, like mm-hmm. kind of check it out. But... Um, no, I didn't. Yeah. But I it's, it's, it's that vibe, right? It's Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read them either. I was looking at just the creator credits on the first issue. The Ms. Tree story is by uh, Max Allen Collins, which would be interesting. There's a Batman story in there draw, written by Denny O'Neill with art by Mike Grell. I'd love to take a look at that one unless it's a reprint. It might be a reprint. And then the Midnight story is drawn by Graham Nolan, which might be a different character, but I, I think it'd probably look cool just based on that. Yeah, so. definitely. So there, there are pulp comics out there, pulpish comics, and probably in bargain bins. Yeah, I'm not sure mystery is is a hot ticket item. For example, you know, if you like that kind of thing, you, you can seek it out. And I think this is a good example of that kind of story. It's one of the better Roy Thomas pieces in Secret Origins, really, as far as like a one shot piece that doesn't connect too much with everything else. Mm-hmm. Again, like for, I mean, everybody remembers him from All-Star Squadron and his work on the Avengers and stuff at Marvel, but this story made me remember how much I like when he's doing other genres, when he's doing pulp crime noir, when he's doing horror, when he's doing sword and sandal fantasy stories. Just Oh yeah, Conan, right? Yeah, yeah, Conan. <laughs> yeah, you often, well, when you talk about Roy Thomas, either you're talking Conan or then, or you're talking yeah, All-Star Squadron, Earth 2, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Golden Age Heroes. Uh, and sometimes it's hard sometimes to reconcile that they were one and the same writer. Yeah, yeah, you know, really. When you're discussing it, no, definitely you can tell he has a passion for this kind of material. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the the market wasn't able to sustain that kind of thing in uh, in large enough numbers. Right. So you can't have a midnight story series 
if you got one crime noir series in your whole roster, then I'm sorry, there's no room for another. Yeah. That's pretty much what happened. All right. Well, any final thoughts on the character or the story? I think I've covered it. I, you know, it's, uh, yeah, no. The answer well, is no. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the Secret Origins podcast once again. And Siskoid, where can people find you online? And now the second question I get to ask, what other podcasts should people be listening to if they want to hear more from you? <laughs> uh, well, the uh, I'm always writing at Siskoid's blog of geekery. That's not going to stop. It's an addiction. I two posts a day, siskoid.blogspot.com. Uh, and uh, as far as podcasts go, uh, we discussed Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast earlier, which Secret Origins was one of the inspirations for it. I must admit, uh, that's, you know, all the, I put a lot, a lot of bells and whistles and little songs and little clips, which you do too. And that's what inspired me to do that as well. And then, you know, push it to 11, by which I mean, put too much of it in it. So, <laughs> Uh, so there's this full production values on <laughs> Lonely Hearts and theater plays, and I hope you'll come in and do a voice for one of our Romance Comics theater someday, because I'm asking everyone, really. Oh, we'll do. And so we're do- I'm doing that, and uh, next episode should, you know, there I've, be- I've got like eight episodes out, mm-hmm. easy to find at uh, Lonely Hearts, uh, whatever it's called, Find Lonely Hearts, or, you know, it's going to be on the um, Fire and Water Network so they should all be easy to find, right? Yeah. And, and I'm also working on a couple of other things. The episodes are in the can as we speak and working on the editing and should be out soon enough if they're not already. But there's a inv- uh, first strike, the Invasion podcast. It's all about the DC Comics crossover from 1988. Awesome. Which I'm doing, with, yeah, I'm doing it with one of my Lonely Hearts um, brothers. And then there's the very odd perhaps but uh we're doing a companion series to uh, who's who with the marvel universe deluxe uh, series ohatmu as it's called the show is called ohatmu or not <laughs> so it's yeah so it's the girls from the legion of super bloggers who comment on legionnaires without really knowing who they are uh, and basically discuss how dateable they might be mm-hmm. they're going through with me as a host they're going through ohatmu and uh, Which if anybody if anybody doesn't know what Uhatmu is, the official handbook, handbook of the Marvel Universe. Yep. It was their version of Who's Who for DC. Right. And uh, so they're going through um, Marvel Universe and discussing each character as it comes. And it's very raucous and out of control and explicit. <laughs> uh, there is talk of bulges. <laughs> or, or lack of. I think Marvel had maybe a policy to unbulge. <laughs> Inkers must unbulge art. So, <laughs> uh, so that's part of it. So that should be a lot of fun if I can get the editing right um, because it's, uh, it's quite chaotic as far as uh, podcasts go. But uh, it should be fun. So all, the, all of these um, episodes and series should be out soon. Well, I hope you'll listen. I'm looking forward to that one so I can vote whether something is oh hot moo or not moo. Right. Hey, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to the First Strike Invasion podcast because that sounds like a whole lot of fun. So, Siskoid, one more time, thank you for being part of the show, and I'm looking forward to having you on again in the future. Okay, it's a pleasure. I'll be back. You will be. It's a threat. <laughs> Taken. <laughs> The 
Before I get to listener feedback, I wanted to mention something about the Nightshade story in this episode. I said that it's very talky and it's basically a conversation between two people and that I hate it. But I don't hate it just because it's a conversation. I have read phenomenal comics that were just two people talking. In fact, on an upcoming episode, we're going to cover the secret origin of Wally West. That story is framed by Wally talking to a psychiatrist. Most of the story is just Wally and his doctor in an office. But aside from the quality of writing, what made that Wally West story better was that Bill Mesner Lobes made the conversation crucial to the story. Wally has mental and psychological barriers. He needs to talk to his doctor, needs to tell him how and why he became Kid Flash and then The Flash in order to overcome those barriers. The telling of the origin isn't just conversation to kill time, it advances Wally's story in our eyes and in the greater narrative. I don't think that was the case for Nightshade in this issue. If she didn't share her story with Father Kramer, nothing would have changed. She still would have gone on the mission with the rest of the Suicide Squad. So that is why I think this story was a failure. Because Eve's chat with the priest that served as the framing device didn't change her at all or affect the mission that would follow. All of that could have been thrown out for just a straight narrative retelling of her origin. So, Anyway, moving on. Something I forgot to cover last time is I've gotten four new iTunes reviews for Secret Origins Podcast, which is great. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, The first of the new reviews, which was dated back in December 5th, this one comes from Darren and Ruth Sutherland from Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds Podcast. Don't keep this great show a secret. Ryan Daly and a rotating group of co-hosts cover the Secret Origins series from DC Comics. In addition to providing excellent summaries for the issues, the hosts also discuss other iterations of the characters throughout the decades. Council of Geeks left a review, Secret Origins was a pretty unique title, and whether any given issue is great or lousy, it's a series worth talking about. Ryan Daly brings his enthusiasm, and a rotating slew of guests bring the expertise in whatever character's origin is being presented. This show is surprisingly tight, even for sometimes running nearly three hours. It stays on topic, and the conversations are always fun to listen to. A must-listen for any comic book fan, even if you don't consider yourself a DC person. Saya Masenko said... This podcast should be no secret. Every DC comic fan needs to be listening. If you have an interest in classic origins or want to relive reading the series, then this show is not to be missed. And finally, Al Gerding said, The comics that this podcast covers came out in the 1980s, and they were very enjoyable at the time. This podcast makes everything old new again, because it is so much fun listening to the host and guest hosts cover each issue. The only bad thing is that he will eventually run out of issues. What will I do then? I don't know, Al. We'll find out together. Okay, moving on to the social media. Episode 27 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Alan Middleton, Alan, that's someone different from Professor Alan, Between the Pages, Coffee and Comics blog, Codename Greg A., that's Greg Arujo, Comics Couplets, David Gutierrez, Ed Moore, Inigo Montoya, Ernie, Gabriel M. Cox, Hicks, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Let's Talk Shazam, World Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Sin, Time Travel, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Willie Yarbrough, and Zavisha Patrol. That's Doug Zavisha. New Facebook likes and shares came from Al Sedano, Baru Sunrider, Clinton Robison, Dean Ramos, Forrest Green, 
Igor Tolton, Igor Glushkin, Igor Snowden, Jared West, Jeff Farnham, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Max Romero, Nicholas Prom, Paul Lyle, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. Van Z, better known as Al Girding, posted Terg Edosype, Lloyd na et snoteldim de conk ti tuo fo et crop. That's Backwards Magic Talk for a great episode. You and the Middletons knocked it out of the park. Well, thank you for everybody who supported the show on Facebook and on Twitter. On to the website comments. Remember, people, if you want to leave a comment for the show, you can shoot me an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com or post on the Secret Origins entry of the Fire and Water website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secretorigins. Uh, The first comment on last week's episode, Chris Franklin, our good friend from the Supermates podcast, said, Great to hear Professor Allen and Emily, just a classy couple of folks who always offer some unique insight into any comic they review. And this one seems kind of... Well, it's odd. I think you can see the puppet strings. I don't have this issue, but I recall reading the updated entries for Satana, Dr. Mist, and Felix Faust in Who's Who 88 and wondering, when did this happen? It sure seemed like I must have missed a giant Zatanna special or miniseries. Nope, just this issue of Secret Origins. Reading the All-Star Companion and Alter Ego 100 years later, I learned about the editorial quagmire this issue got wrapped up in. No wonder it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, there was a wonderful Zatanna special that came out a year before this issue of Secret Origins, but it didn't rewrite her origin or anything like that. Uh, The art in that special was by Gray Morrow, and it is gorgeous. So look for me to cover that story, eventually, on Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. And Chris adds, Fred Fredericks was an artist on the Mandrake comic strip, which is obviously who Zatara was based on. In fact, the visuals are so close, it's a wonder King Features never sued. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of one company suing another one because a character looked like another. That sounds utterly preposterous. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast said, Having a guest-father-daughter combo to talk about Zatanna and Zatara is perfect. You have a J.J. Abrams-esque eye for casting. Well, thank you for that, but it certainly helps when you have a pool of all-star talent to draw from. Rob goes on, It must have really killed you in the loins department that when Secret Origins finally gets to Zatanna, most of the time she's in the least sexy outfit they ever had her in, and I'm counting the one with the giant bug in her head. Yeah, I hate Zatanna's costume in this issue. Now, I haven't read her four-issue series from the early 90s when she dressed like the leader of the Morlocks, so I don't want to judge that costume by its covers, But yes, traditional tuxedo top and fishnets for me, followed by the Cindela costume that her mother wore with the red cape, and then followed by the violet and white Perez redesign with the bug beret. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, This issue is overall weird, and I appreciate you all struggling to make some sense of it. I don't know if I like the Dr. Mist side of things at all. How is Faust alive that long ago? How did he create all, and I mean all, the magical heroes? Were all of these historical figures really homo magi? It was odd that he would be such a key figure on the DCU and never be mentioned before. Of course, all that is undone on page 37 when he says he has no power save immortality. Does that mean the first third of the book is a lie? I don't get it. At all. Yeah, I think because I love Zatanna and because I wanted to be a positive host for the Middletons, 
I wasn't as critical on this issue as I normally would have been. The plain truth is, I think issue 27 sucked. Poorly conceived, terribly executed. From the writing standpoint, anyway, the art was mostly good. Luckily, I didn't have any such reservations about offending Aaron on this episode by telling him the Nightshade origin sucked, too. Uh, Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Network popped in to mention, based on Emily's current obsession with a certain Broadway musical, she regrets not pointing out at the time the obvious oversight that Alexander Hamilton should have been included as a homo magi. Jeff Nettleton left a whole page of comments, but I'm only going to read the part where he talks about Tom Artis, one of the artists on the last issue. Tom Artis was a real case of talent that never got the right showcase. He got a few gigs on the indie scene, then got some assignments at DC. His highest profile, aside from Tailgunner Joe, was The Web from the DC Archie Impact line. Unfortunately, Artis had real trouble with deadlines, and it kind of killed his chances of getting work at DC and Marvel. Artis was a fixture in the Springfield, Illinois comic book community, as he was one of the few artists of that area to get work at the Big Two, the other major name being Tim Conrad. He was a bit of a character, and probably his own worst enemy, professionally. I met him at a convention and got a sketch of the Black Terror. He had put out a Black Terror comic a couple of years before that started out looking great, then the quality of the book took a nosedive, as it appeared that it was rushed to get it finished and wasn't fully inked. On a few occasions, he came into the Barnes & Noble, where I had been a manager with some of his art students-slash-apprentices, always carrying a big wooden staff, like something out of a comic book. Sadly, he had health issues and passed away in 2007. Siskoid, from this episode, as well as the Lonely Hearts Romance podcast, said, My origin story with Zatanna was satellite-era JLA, when she had a snake in her hair. I liked her fine, and even more when she moved to Detroit. So it took me a while to get used to the fishnets, as that costume didn't really feel like that of a superhero. Today, I feel differently. The 1993 miniseries tried to get away from backward spells and toward true sorcery, if I recall correctly, but nothing came of that either. So my favorite Zatanna project remains Seven Soldiers. I just like putting my hand right up to hers on the page. Man, I always forget about Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers of Victory. She looked good in that series. I think that was Ryan Sook, and... And I just realized or remembered what Siskoid meant about putting his hand up to hers. In the, that was a freaky layout or whatever. Whew. Okay. Uh, moving on. Bradley Null said, I am a huge fan of the family Zatara in the comics. I am a huge fan of the family Middleton in podcast land. So this is a great combo. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom said issue 27 was possibly the best cover of the series by this point. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Wonderful episode. Great to have Emily and the professor for this one. I do hope they dressed alike. <sighs> you know, I can't believe I forgot to ask. Jeff R. said, For a story with ambitions of being a grand unified history of DC magic, there are some odd omissions, like Atlantis being reduced to a single offhand mention, say, or completely skipping over the Gemworld backstory in which a vast majority of magic users fled there during the Inquisition and never returned to the rest of society, at least not until the Legion's time frame, or Merlin for that matter. Once again, Secret Origins passes up the opportunity to mention Etrigan. That pains me too, Jeff. And finally, we come to Diablo Frank. You may recall that on last episode, I expressed extreme exasperation with Frank's contrarianism. Well, he took his revenge by posting his usual pages-long, nuanced, and articulated response three times. 
Not the same thing, but three comments amounting to four single-spaced pages. Naturally, I am not going to read all of it on this episode, but I recommend you head on over to the blog and read his ramblings, if only so that you can catch what he means by the phrase fornicator of materfamilias. So, cherry-picking some of Frank's comments, this issue has a swell cover for all of the reasons mentioned on the podcast, plus an attractive art style and the natural association of the featured parties within their choice environment. My one complaint is that you don't debut a radical new costume design on the cover of a Secret Origins issue reliant upon immediate recognition of the subject character for purchases. You know, I made a very similar argument when I discussed Trevor Von Eden's cover to Black Canary issue 9 over on Flowers and Fishnets, except that is quite possibly the worst comic book cover I have ever seen. Uh, Frank talked at length about Dr. Mist, but I'm not going to read any of it because I don't care about Dr. Mist. There, how's that feel? Frank also name-dropped my favorite Woody Allen movie, What's Up, Tiger Lily, and I'm calling dibs right now if Rob ever wants to cover that on Film and Water. Anyway, then Frank gets to the good stuff. He talks about how he's never found Zatanna's stories all that appealing to him, and how her costume changes pegged her, unfortunately, as a Scarlet Witch clone. He says, It's a shame, too, because I still see Zatanna as a hugely valuable and important figure in the DC firmament, as well as to comics in general. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't she the first true legacy character in the sense of being the actual offspring of an established hero, as opposed to simply taking on the mantle? It's still rare and novel for a successful character to come out of a series of loosely linked guest appearances in a variety of titles over an expanse of time. Is she the only one, in fact? It makes her uniquely connected to the universe as a whole, instead of inhabiting a single pocket. This is me. Um, the only other example I can think of that might fit that description would be Agent Coulson. Frank continues, As has been well documented, I'm a firm believer in differentiating comic book universes. The big superhero revival of the Silver Age was obviously based in science fiction, for which Julie Schwartz had a better credentials, but from which Stan Lee most benefited by having a comparatively grounded line. However, the Golden Age was more magically inclined, especially DC, and by hewing too closely to Julie's philosophy, DC has never reclaimed their original flavor orientation. That also meant we never got proper Silver Age revivals of DC's magical characters, with the exception of Zatanna. Ideally, Z should be one of their most visible and powerful characters, at the forefront of a more sorcerous sphere, instead of simply being on the Vertigo League. If you'll forgive my being sexist for a moment, Magic is woman's work. Both Marvel and DC have spent three quarters of a century having almost exclusively male scientists run their worlds. I understand Mark Wade hopes to inject a new wasp into their ranks, and I don't think DC's intellectual hierarchy is as well-defined or staffed as it once was when all their heroes had PhDs, but that's still going to be a challenge to feminize. On the other hand, both companies have heaps of warlocks who've repeatedly tried and failed to make a go of it as solo showcase players. Despite my affection for Doctor Strange, none of these guys, save John Constantine, have had any significant cultural impact in a generation, and I quite frankly think Hellblazer's time has passed as well. Society in general associates magic more with witches, with classical feminine notions like intuition, emotion, and spirituality. Women are still viewed in extremes, goddesses and succubi, a more empowered variation of the virgin harlot paradigm. 
women partake of the craft, read from the Book of Shadows, relieve the enchantment of Once Upon a Time. Dudes are just goons who drive muscle cars and try to stab demons with ensorcelled weapons. If DC were to embrace the dark fantasy trappings that sets them apart from the science bros at Marvel, they could find new audiences, and Zatanna could be the mayor of Magic Town. I love all of that. I want Zatanna to have that level of prominence in the DC universe. They are Sorceress Supreme. I love the stage show aspect of her character, but it does undermine her power level. I think a more concentrated effort should be made to explain that that is just her day job, her secret identity. She should be the premier magic user in DC. Her power should make Superman pause. She should move effortlessly through the high-concept Justice League adventures and the darker Vertigo realms. And you, dear listeners, will be able to hear me talk about Zatanna a lot more on Episode 3 of Power of Fishnets, coming in March. For now, though, that is going to be all for this episode. Once more, I want to thank Aaron Moss and Siskoid for being my guests. Check out Aaron's shows on the Headcast Network and Siskoid's podcast here on the Fire and Water Network. I also want to thank all of my listeners who took the time to leave a comment or a response on the website, the Facebook page, or on Twitter. Secret Origins is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secretorigins or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Oh, it's evil, babe. The way you let your grace enrapture me.